Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The 4th of July is upon us, the most American of holidays. It makes us think about what this country is and isn't. President Trump helped us with the definition last month as he launched his re-election bid. We are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. That's President Trump at his State of the Union address. But Democratic candidates have all sorts of social policy proposals these days. Medicaid for all, Green New Deal, free college tuition, even child care. There are Democrats, though, who think these appeals go too far. John Hagenlooper is the former governor of Colorado, and he was asked about socialism at the debate. You've warned that Democrats will lose in 2020 if they embrace socialism, as you put it. You were booed at the California Democratic Convention when you said that. Only one candidate on this stage, Senator Sanders, identifies himself as a Democratic Socialist. What are the policies or positions of your opponents that you think are veering towards socialism? Well, I think that the bottom line is if we don't clearly define that we are not socialists, the Republicans are going to come at us every way they can and and call us socialists. And... If you look at the Green New Deal, which I admire the sense of urgency and how important it is to do climate change. I'm a scientist, but we can't promise every American a government job. If you want to get universal health care coverage, I believe that health care is a right and not a privilege. But you can't expect to eliminate private insurance for 180 million people, many of whom who don't want to give it up. In Colorado, we brought businesses and nonprofits together. We got to near universal health care coverage. We were the first state in America to, to bring the environmental community and the oil and gas industry to address aggressively address methane emissions. And we were also the first place to, to expand reproductive rights on a scale basis, and we reduced teen pregnancy by 54%. We've done the big progressive things that people said couldn't be done I've done what pretty much everyone else up here is still talking about. Governor Hickenlooper. That's Governor John Hickenlooper from Colorado speaking at the Democratic debates the other night. The Socialism 2019 conference is in town. It starts tomorrow and runs through July 7th. And we're going to talk about socialism, what it is, what it isn't, and what you think it is. We'll take a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. With me is Micah Utrecht. He is the managing editor of The Jacobin, and and he is the host of their vast majority podcast as well. He's writing a book about building a movement that's bigger than Bernie. Nice to meet you, Micah. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Alderman Carlos Rosa. He represents the 35th Ward at Chicago City Council. He's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and the Socialism 2019 conference is put on by Haymarket Books, the Jacobin, and the Democratic Socialists of America. Nice to meet you, Alderman Carlos Rosa. Happy to be here. 
Uh, I wonder if you could just react to what we heard about the the, the scaremongering from both Republicans and Democrats about socialism. Uh, we, you know, you know, John Higginlooper thinks you're going to get beat up just using the word and to the point where you cannot win elections anymore. Well, first of all, condolences to uh, Hickenlooper because there was a Politico headline yesterday that said that his campaign is, quote, in shambles. So I don't think his anti-socialist <laughs> crusade has worked out too well for him. Um, I think that this is the kind of scaremonger that's often been used to try to push against a, a robust political vision, a robust left-wing political position that can that argues for things like uh, health care for all people, public uh, higher education for all people, affordable housing, all of that. And I think that we've tried to make that argument over and over that, that people like Hickenlooper uh, have said, uh, oh, you know, you can't have this stuff. They don't want to put forward a bold vision. They just say, oh, you can't have this. You can't have that. You can't. Have. They, they talk about all the things that we can't do. And socialists right now are the ones in American politics who are putting forward a robust, bold vision for the a kind of society that we could live in that uh, benefits all people and not just a tiny elite. So I think that uh, he's wrong to uh, attack socialists in that way. And in fact, that it's much more dangerous to try to run the, the kind of tepid centrist campaigns that don't put forward a bold vision. Uh, I think that is destined to lose in 2020, not running on a, a vision like democratic socialism. Alderman Rosa, you've been running and running again. You got reelected as right. a democratic socialist of America. Uh, what, what, um, what is, what's the winning kind of ticket there? How, how do you do it? Well, I think it's about going to people and talking to them about what is it that they're facing in the workplace? What is it that they're facing in their neighborhood? And what can we as a society do collectively to address that? And so socialists fight for strong unions. Socialisms fight for living wages. Socialisms fight for social housing, public housing, to make sure that we have affordable housing and it's provided as a human right. We fight for fully funded schools. Uh, we fight for Medicare for all. And so it's really talking about the bread and butter issues that are impacting Americans at the table. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have seen Republicans for decades now slam Democrats as socialists. We saw John McCain and Sarah Palin attack Barack Obama in 2008 and say he's a socialist, he's a socialist, he's a socialist. Um, and now when we look at who the most popular politician in the United States is, when you look at polling consistently with a extreme, uh, extremely high favorability, it's Senator Bernie Sanders, right? Because he's actually speaking to the things uh, that Americans need and are hugely popular and they want. Now, we hear uh, politicians every day, though, say that we shouldn't be promising things we, we can't afford, that we can't have, that make you look like it's pie in the sky. Today, I could pick up the New York Times and uh, Thomas Friedman listed off a lot of things that we should do to win the next election. And his number one was don't promise all this free stuff. Is it just you, we, we cannot promise all this free stuff? Well, that is an argument that says don't give people the things that they need and that they say in overwhelming numbers that they want, like Medicare for all. Uh, so I, just politically, I don't think that's a very winning strategy. But it's also true that we live in the wealthiest country in all of human history. And the argument for policies like Medicare for all is not an argument uh, even for a, a radical restructuring of society. It's saying – 
we should have a policy that literally every other wealthy country in the world has, which is uh, a public health care system. So uh, we're, we're not arguing for uh, anything uh, pie in the sky when we're arguing for something like Medicare for All or for affordable housing. We're, we're arguing for things that are well within our grasp. Again, as a country and as a world with immense resources, there is no reason why we can't have those things. And, and there's no reason why people shouldn't have those things. There's no reason in such a wealthy country that anybody should be declaring bankruptcy uh, over their Medicare, their medical bills, or, uh, you know, having 50000 100000 sometimes even $200,000 worth of student debt that haunts them for the rest of their lives. We Democratic socialists are making the argument that we all deserve to lead decent and dignified lives, and decent and dignified lives are well within our reach. We're talking about socialism, and with me is Micah Utrecht, the managing editor of The Jacobin, and Alderman Carlos Rosa, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. We'll take a few phone calls. 312-923-9239 is the number to call. I did want to get down to like the basic definition of socialism, which uh, scares the wits out of some people. Uh, you know, workers owning the means of production. And (laughs) that seems like uh, we can't have private enterprise anymore. There is, uh, you know, that that strikes fear into the heart of people, Carlos. One of the things that struck me about the the soundbite that you played of President Trump, which I watched the State of Union, I was listening to it as he uttered those words, is he said the word coercion. And he talked about government coercion. The reality is that workers face so much coercion right now under, quote, unquote, you know, the private market, under, quote, unquote, the free market, right? Um, Workers are forced to keep their jobs and are afraid of losing their jobs for fear of losing their health care, right? So we see the coercion right there of the supposed free market. So many women are in positions where they're facing sexual abuse in the workplace and are afraid to speak up because uh, they're afraid of losing their jobs. Undocumented workers um, who in many places face physical abuse in the workplace, uh, who are in essentially, you know, very precarious situations are afraid to speak up for losing their job and for being reported to ICE. And so we already see an extreme amount of coercion uh, under the current status quo. Democratic socialism is ultimately about liberty. It's ultimately about having a truly democratic society. And the way that you achieve that is through ensuring that everyone has a seat at the table, everyone has a voice. So there's many different ways that you can achieve that. One of them is making sure that, you know, you have very strong unions. Another way that you can achieve that is workers' cooperatives, right, Um, which is a way of workers, you know, uh, owning the means of production. So I think when you demystify it and when you actually really speak about what we're facing – you know, kind of the the propaganda that we've been fed for decades uh, by those that want to maintain the status quo, where the rich have an extreme amount of power and are able to use that power and money to coerce governments to course all of us, course all of us uh, to give uh, them their way. Uh, we begin to understand that really democratic socialism is freedom in its, its truest sense. Right. It's about expanding democracy in society, expanding the kind of democracy that we have in a political sense, in terms of electing our leaders. We want we we believe that it is good to have political democracy. We want to expand that kind of political democracy. We also believe that we should be expanding democracy into other realms of society. And as Carlos mentioned, when you uh, are, can't you. Know, have to choose between having health care or not health, having health care to keep your job. You are not free. You do not have any kind of democratic say in what your life looks like. And so uh, for democratic socialism, the reason it's called democratic socialism is because we believe in the expansion of democracy into further uh, realms of life that currently don't have it and deepening democracy where we do have it. Well, when you stick the democratic on top of the socialism, that, that makes it um, easier for people? 
You know, I will say that when I go out knocking doors, when I talk to people about what it is that we're seeking to do, and at the local level, the way that we've manifested democratic socialism is through community-driven zoning. So no zoning change happens in the 35th world, 35th word without a clear community meeting, without a participatory planning process where the community really gets to decide what's going to be built where if a zoning change is required. Um, it looks like participatory budgeting. So every alderman gets $1.3 million in menu money to build new infrastructure projects in their ward. We uh, allocate that money through a participatory democratic process where everyone, regardless of their citizenship status, gets to have an opportunity to have a say on how that money is allocated. So when you talk to people about it that way, you know, they're not really focused on the label. Um, but I think ultimately, as we engage in political education, as we engage in talking to people, there comes a point where we do have to say, and guess what? That's democratic socialism. Um, and so I think when you talk to people about the programs that we're seeking to implement, the way we seek to govern, uh, and you then explain to them that that's democratic socialism, it helps demystify it and it helps uh, make people really embrace it in a way that we haven't seen in a generation. Well, let's talk to some people at 312-923-9239. Mike in Oak Park, you're on WBEZ. Yeah, hello. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I appreciate this discussion, but uh, it's a discussion we just keep hearing over and over, uh, trying to validate socialism. In my opinion, I think we should be trying to say, uh, is capitalism viable? I mean, it's failed our majority of our world's population. It's failing our environment that we're destroying. Uh, the, co- the corporations keep consolidating more and more power. Uh, again, the disparaging uh, situation between uh, the top uh, little sliver of humanity versus the rest uh, of the world uh, is just evidence enough that capitalism is broken. So I'd like to start hearing these capitalists start to explain why this hundreds of year old economic system is still viable in our world today. Because it's not. And all you have to do is look around and see it doesn't work. And if you look at some of the things that do work in this world, it's socialism. I mean, we have socialism in all areas of our life, whether it's public education, uh, again, even things like uh, law enforcement, uh, the mail service. I mean, these are, you know, again, socialist type of uh, practices. So, again, I, I'm getting a little tired of the argument on why socialists have to explain that our system is viable. All right. All right. I think we got you, Mike. Now, let, let's um, get some reaction here. because I think it's interesting that... Um, Capitalism, the critiques of capitalism are, are certainly more prominent these days. I, I think that's uh, part of why people are talking about socialism. Yeah, it's a reflection of the material conditions that people are living in that Mike mentioned. We can look around and see just a tiny handful of people who are controlling so much wealth and so much political power. And I agree with the caller that that the defenders of capitalism really have to answer for that. And I think that is that is the system of capitalism functioning in in, in the way that is inherent to that system. I mean. Uh, it's a it's a system that is designed to compel people to uh, accumulate, you know, capitalists to accumulate as much profit, as much wealth as possible, and to uh, do it at the expense of everyone else. Uh, certainly, the climate crisis that we face, for example, is one in which this 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 impulsion of the system to accumulate more and more and more to destroy whatever of the planet is necessary uh, in order to make profits. Uh, it is one that will not last us many more decades on. <laughs> 
this planet, uh, much less you know create a, a, an equitable society in the long term. So uh, it is a you know it's a it, the defenders of capitalism have to answer for those kinds of uh, inequalities and environmental devastation and, and the miseries that it's uh, inflicted. Uh, and and it's strange to me that uh, they don't often have to do that. It's just sort of like the water that we're swimming in. But but it is we should be asking why uh, why they don't have to be held to account for that. Let's go to Stacy in Valparaiso. You're on WBEZ. Hi. Um, I just wanted to speak to and have you speak to this idea of post-high school education, college education being available and free to everybody. And in a socialist nation, uh, you have to earn the right for a post-high school education by studying hard, by having the aptitude for what you want to study. They think we have more freedom in the U.S. to pick what we want to study and maybe not earn our way into that education and have to pay for it. Any comments on that? All right. I mean, do you think that earning your way in is good or bad? Well, you know, we have this great myth of the U.S. being a meritocracy. The reality is is that Europe has more upward mobility today than the U.S., which is supposed to be the land of the free. That's supposed to be, you know, the land of great opportunity. Um, we also see how rich parents buy their way uh, for their kids into, uh, you know, great schools. Uh, we see how um, increasingly public universities and private universities are shifting away from the liberal arts, which is now deemed by the market as not lucrative, is not, you know, a, a education worth having, uh, and are eliminating programs. Um, I remember the, the president of University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where I went, which was a uh, publicly funded university created to serve the industrial masses. Uh, the president of University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, when I was down there, he said, uh, you know, we really got to start looking at certain programs and talking about eliminating them. And he was talking about the liberal arts. I was a political science major. He said, because, you know, for some college students, it'll just make more sense for them to graduate and start working at Best Buy as opposed to going and getting this college degree. So we see how the market is so coercive, how it reaches into everything, right? And it seeks to make everything about how can we generate the most profit for those that already have a tremendous amount of wealth. And that is what then dictates what is happening in our schools, what's happening in our lives. So I, I really would push back against that contention that, um, you know, under socialism, uh, we're going to have a more course of education system. We already see how coercive it is under capitalism. Alderman Carlos Rosa represents the 35th Ward in Chicago. He's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Micah Utrecht is the managing editor of The Jacobin. And they are in town for the Socialism 2019 conference, which starts tomorrow and runs through the 7th. And we are going to be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking a bit about socialism today. The Socialism 2019 conference opens tomorrow and runs through the 7th. With me is Micah Utrecht from the Jack- from Jacobin, and Alderman Carlos Rosa is here from the 35th Ward. He's with the Democratic Socialists of America. We're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. And Kevin, you're on WBEZ. Hello, Kevin. 
Gabriel, you're on WBEZ. Oh, uh, great. I'm, I made mean, it. Uh, yes, I was listening to the, to the show, and I was just thinking about it's great that they're bringing all this attention to nationalized health care, and especially Bernie Sanders. And there's this uh, repeated uh, idea that this is a rich country that can afford uh, nationalized health care. But uh, they actually have it uh, kind of reverse. It's that countries get it not because they can afford it, but because they want their country to get richer. By nationalizing it or highly regulating it, it prevents the private sector from charging health insurance according to what the market will bear. And this will make, and since people need Medicare or uh, health insurance, they'll pay more. They'll pay because they need it. And by uh, eliminating that problem, it allows for the, the country collectively to have a higher disposable income, which can be used to stimulate the economy. All right. So you're down with this. Oh, yeah. yeah. It'll make the country uh, health, uh, wealthier. That's why. It's not because we can afford it. It's, it's to help us get wealthier, to raise the standard of living, to stimulate the domestic economy. All right. Thanks a lot for calling. You know, I was one of the things I wanted to bring up before we go is was I was looking back on um, past socialist politicians, and Milwaukee did uh, a hot streak of socialist mayors. They had, I don't know, decades of socialist mayors. And uh, Milwaukee, and they were known for their good governance. They were uh, known, they cleaned up uh, a corrupt government. And they also brought uh, the first public bus system to the United States of America. The first public housing project started in 1923 in Milwaukee. Uh, free legal, medical, educational services, urban renewal programs. That's an interesting record that we don't uh, hear about very often. Right. And there's a wider record of socialists having that kind of impact on policies. I mean, even something like the New Deal under FDR, a lot of the policies that ended up being instituted under the New Deal came from the Socialist Party platform at the time. And so uh, even when socialists have not had their names stamped on certain policies, uh, they have been a- advocating and agitating for them for a, a very long time. And I think your your caller was correct to say that uh, the, we have this sort of affordability question of uh, public health care uh, wrong. I mean, we, we all know that the United States pays more per capita for health care than anyone, any other country in the world. And that is uh, because when we let the market run rampant on a basic human need like health care, uh, we will get you know insulin prices that are beyond the reach of people who need insulin or uh, AIDS medication that, that people with AIDS need, all kinds of uh, medication people need. If we don't have the government intervening to, to keep those prices down, uh, and to provide these goods uh, for people who need them in our society, uh, they they become they balloon in price and they they come out of reach. So I think the caller is is correct on that front that uh, we need Medicare for all, and we we can't afford not to have Medicare for all in this country. Here is Jay in Rogers Park. Hi, Jay. Hello. You're on WBEZ. Good. As a retired firefighter, I can appreciate socialism. After all, we're not paid according to the most work firefighter, the most work. However, under socialism, how do we protect against poor individualism and how do we reward personal initiative and creativity? I'll take your answer. Comment. One of the things I think um, we often think about is um, capitalists or, or defenders of the status quo will point to an iPhone 
and they'll say, look at this iPhone. This was only made possible under this great system that we live under. And the reality is, is that if you read about Steve Jobs, if you study Steve Jobs, if you, if you study the great minds at Apple, you find that they did it out of you know, their creative initiative. They did it out of their desire to create something that was better, uh, that was something that was bigger than them. And if you look at the cave paintings right, that date back thousands and thousands of years, what was the profit motive? Right in the cave painting, you know that the first human being made, and so the reality is, is like humans, we want to be able to create, and and socialism really liberates us from that profit motive, from what we call wage slavery, right, where you are literally forced to you know give up your labor. If not, you will die on the streets, right? You will starve to death. You are you are literally coerced into uh, you know trading your labor and your time. It really liberates us uh, to be free uh, to really explore what it means to be human, to unleash all of our creative forces. And the great thing about socialism is that because it is democratic, we create that together. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting, the, uh, the iPhone example. I mean, markets really distributed that thing very efficiently all over the planet. Um, and there's candidates in the race who do a lot of things that sound progressive and socialism like but uh don't but but still really want those markets that distribute things greatly and it, and Elizabeth Warren seems to be one of those candidates and I wanted to play a a clip from Elizabeth Warren where she talks and defends uh her position on uh, being a capitalist you don't think capitalists are bad people i'm a capitalist come on I believe in markets. What I don't believe in is theft. What I don't believe in is cheating. That's where the difference is. I love what markets can do. I love what functioning economies can do. They are what make us rich. They are what create opportunity. But only fair markets. Markets with rules. Markets without rules is about the rich take it all. It's about the powerful get all of it. Does Elizabeth Warren have a point? Does she have something right? Well, many socialists do not argue that we should have no kinds of markets whatsoever. You can read about many such proposals in Jacobin. We talk about this very often. Uh, but to say that uh, she is a capitalist to her bones, well, first of all, as the pedantic uh, socialist editor would say, well, if you don't own the means of production, you're not a capitalist. But what she means is that she's a proponent of capitalism. Uh, and to me, as much as I respect Elizabeth Warren, I think that is a, an important difference between her and someone like Bernie Sanders is that uh, what we're talking about is not – you know, no markets and not no iPhones and not no consumer goods. We're talking about taking on the forces in society uh, that are creating so much misery and so much inequality and, and are hoarding so much wealth and political power. And in order to do that, you have to take on capitalists. You have to take on the ultra wealthy people in society. You have to see them as somebody who, uh, you know, you need to wage a struggle against. Um, and so in not emphasizing the need to do that and, uh, you know, Claiming uh, being a capitalist, I, I think Elizabeth Warren is is making a, a slight mistake there. I think that uh, the in order to really get at the root cause of our problem uh, problems as a society, we need to be taking on uh, the, the capitalists who run things in society. Uh, Alderman Carlos Rosa, do you have some thoughts on that? Well, I'll add that you know Milton Friedman uh, would obviously <laughs> take great issue uh, with Elizabeth Warren's calling herself a capitalist and then saying we need you know regulation, we need control, we need to have uh, you know some some ability to have the government regulate these markets. Um, and so what we have seen um, in many ways um, is 
as we see more and more wealth concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people, uh, we see how that really does, you know, impact the government's ability to regulate, uh, you know, the market. And I think a socialist would argue that that is the ultimate direction that capitalism will always head in. Because it's all about accumulating more wealth. When you accumulate more wealth, you accumulate more power. And you then use that to essentially continue that pattern and that trajectory um, until ultimately we see that, you know, this notion of a free market doesn't really exist. And um, as long as we have a few people that, you know, own the means of production and that's not under democratic control, we will always see uh, the market as Elizabeth Warren, you know, lionizes it and, and celebrates it disappear and vanish. Let's try Kevin again in Bridgeport. Kevin, you're on WBEZ. Yes, thanks, Jerome. I'm a lifelong Democrat, and I would even call myself, kind of similar to Elizabeth Warren, a social capitalist, because I believe in capitalism with a social safety net. One question I have, though, for the socialists that you have there, I've spoken with Democratic socialists, and they've been in favor of a 100% inheritance tax. This is something that I just can't understand. Is that what you believe as socialists, that, that uh, you can't leave any inheritance to your kids? Because I really think that would get in the way of personal initiative. That's my question. Well, what gets in the way of personal initiative to me is, you know, billionaires who leave billions to their kids who then uh, never have to have any kind of personal initiative or lift much of a finger for themselves on their own. If you're talking about giving billions, for a billionaire giving billions to their, their children. But what's on the table in America right now is – uh, you know, proposals like the one that uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has put forward about, you know, a 70 uh, percent marginal tax rate for uh, millionaires who uh, are, you know, leaving over a certain uh, amount of money to their kids. The, the, that 70 percent rate would be uh, over uh, or excuse me, she's she's talking about that as an income tax. But you could you could imagine something similar uh, for uh, for an uh, inheritance tax. I mean, I don't think that it is uh, reflect of anybody's initiative uh, when they get bequeathed 50 million, 100 million, a billion dollars from their ultra rich parents. I don't think that's what good old fashioned American ingenuity pull yourself up by your yeah, bootstraps is. And just think about the fact that there are so many rich people that don't have kids, don't want kids, yet they continue to accumulate wealth. Um, and then there are also many, many rich people who have children and don't want anything to do with them and don't want to pass on their wealth. So I think this notion that if you're unable to pass on your wealth to your children, therefore, then that just robs people of any initiative to go out and do anything. Um, it, it just falls flat on its face. But in terms of the general concept of 100% inheritance tax, or as the Republicans would call it, a death tax, if you actually go back and you look at what the founding fathers proposed, many, many of the founding fathers were actually in favor of exactly that type of policy because of the reasons that Micah just laid out, which is where is the initiative? Where is the meritocracy? If you have people accumulate wealth and then pass it on to someone and suddenly this person is stinking rich uh, and did not have to work for it. They just had to you know, be born and keep breathing until their parent died. I want to mention again the conference that's going on, the Socialism 2019 conference and uh Tell us something that uh, Naomi Klein is in town doing a keynote. There's a bunch of bunch of programs, three days worth of stuff. Yeah, we're expecting about 1,200 people to show up. It's uh, at the uh, McCormick Center at the Hyatt. 
and there will be there are dozens of uh, panels. Carlos is speaking on the opening plenary Saturday. Oh, Friday. Friday is the opening plenary with uh, also uh, Alderman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. Uh, and uh, there's going to be uh, it's, you know there, there's so much energy in America right now around socialism as well as around other issues like fighting for abortion rights, fighting for affordable housing, all of this stuff. And, and it's going to be a conference where people come together uh, who believe in these things and and talk about how best to advance that agenda in society. So I would really encourage people to come out to it. The Socialism 2019 conference starts tomorrow and runs through the 7th. Thanks for joining us, Micah Utrecht, managing editor of the Jack of Jacobin, and he hosts their vast majority podcast, and he's also writing a book on Bernie Sanders, and uh, but the gist of it is why Bernie can't be the only one. The movement has to be bigger. And Alderman Carlos Rosa represents the 35th Ward in Chicago and is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you both for joining us and talking with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, where we look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson from Beat Latino on Vocalo and elsewhere. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. Great to see you, and boy, what a treat today. Today, we are going to hear the music of 47 Soul. Say something about 47 Soul, Catalina. Well, a few years back at Womex, at the World Music Expo in Poland, I was walking by, and I just heard this amazing sound. I couldn't figure it out. It was sort of, you know, what one thinks of as Middle Eastern, but it was very electronic. And I sensed some dabka somewhere in there. And it's the uh, Palestinian Jordanian 47 soul. And we have Tarek with us today. Tarek Abu Kuwait is the vocalist and electronics with 47 soul. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tarek. Thank you for having me, guys. Tell Tell us a little about your group, 47 Soul. It sounds like you came together from a variety of places and put yourself together. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Originally, we were all involved in our own projects and other bands. To make it a shorter story, I mean, hard to say the story that fast, but we've known each other from the internet and from people, you know, from the bigger pool of like alternative Arabic scene. And we started doing collaborations together in, you know, in duos and threes and just shows and different stuff, studio work. But then we decided to make a collective between the four of us that focuses on the root sound of the Levant, you know, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon and Jordan. And have that be kind of like the backbone of anything else we want to do, depending on each one of our influences, you know, whether it's soul or hip hop or just Arabic songs and just put them in that Depke kind of form. So that was the original idea of 47 Soul. Well, for those that might not know, Tarek, describe Depke and its role in the roots music and the roots of your homeland. So basically in Palestine and Lebanon and Jordan and Syria and even Iraq, Depke is a dance and you will find it in all celebrations, no matter what, graduation, wedding. It's just the sound of the people, the inhabitants of the area, because the area has a lot of different religions and different, you know, sects and stuff. But that's the music of all the people who live on that land. You know, the music that accompanies it later on in the 80s and stuff, you know, was made on keyboards. 
So you can think of like a Arabic sound system. So instead of having a, a DJ and an MC, you would have a keyboardist and an MC. And the keyboardist plays the drums and everything else, right? So and these keyboards have like Arabic scales and the sounds of the reed instruments that existed in the music that accompanies the Dabke dance. So that electronic version is called Dabkat. So what we've done is we've used that vibe, but also mix it with more like singer songwriter stuff or rap verses or, you know, and other sound influences sonically, like, you know, a rock kind of thing or a, or a dub thing, you know? Yeah. Wow. We call it Shamstep. We call that, <laughs> that process Shamstep, yeah. Right, electro-Arabic, Davke or Shamstep. So before we hear some of that, just remind us of the origins of your name, 47 Soul. So the idea of 47 Soul was, in the first place, we're all originally Palestinian, but we live in different places. So one of us is Palestinian inside Palestine, and some of us is from the indigenous people of Palestine who are now under the 48 border or Israel. And some people are grew up in D.C. as Arab-American, Palestinian-American, and some in Jordan, which is like, home of the Palestinian refugee historically and so we represent the inside and the outside and and the idea of in 1947 there weren't any borders that actually not allow you to travel between all these cities at least in the area which is not the case and like the members of the band cannot all exist in any of the cities of where we're from all together at the same time really complicated when it comes to like Palestinian people's papers like we have very different papers mm. like i'm palestinian jordanian with an id that lets me only go to the west bank and you know i don't want to get into it now but what i'm trying to say is that 47 to us means freedom of movement it means the idea that if you want to tour as a band or see a family member you have the right to be able to cross between borders it's the anti-global apartheid thing you know mm. that's mm. what Shamstep is Wow. Well, let's listen to a song and then you can tell us more about what it's about because I think it fits right in. More light. That's the anthem Mo Light from 47 Soul, and their new uh, release is Balfron Promise. And we're talking with the vocalist and electronics uh, for the group, Tarek Abu Kuwait. Uh, tell, tell us more about Mo Light. It's about, it's about homelessness at its essence? Mo Light is kind of like a, you know, kind of like a call for like, 
it's like if people want to understand like the history that is not very like long like more recent history they can i mean you can actually you know try to understand the problems of the world like we we don't need to always feel that we don't know anything and we're all in the dark and all that like it's just that's the idea and uh, um and so you know it has a lot of different references to to things like the semite people talk that we are all semite people and that's the character of the land we come from versus you know all the new political claims that try to confuse things about that so i mean it's about people trying to understand that there isn't like a, a conflict of ideas you know i mean it, it it's there but it's not as scary as they make it sound in the media and we should just be able to talk to each other and and, and sort of figure out what really is going on i think that's the shortest way i can describe it And we're going to have a chance to see you twice in particular uh, as a Worldview crew, which is very exciting. So our first stop and our first opportunity to see 47 Soul is going to be at all places in London, Ontario, Canada. There's a road trip coming up for Worldview, right, Jerome? Yep. We're going to first Sunfest in London, Ontario, and 47 Soul is going to be there along with a bunch of other groups and three days of fun with Sunfest in London, Ontario. We're also going to Kalamazoo, Flint, Dearborn, Toronto, and doing some shows from there next week. But we are going to do some music with Catalina at Sunfest and see 47 Soul. Also, 47 Soul is going to be at the Old Town School of Folk Music. They're going to be at the Square Roots Night on July 12th. And the Square Roots celebration is a terrific one there on Lincoln Avenue. And I also understand, Tarek, you just did a tiny desk concert at NPR just to cross our paths one more time. I saw a picture on Twitter of, I believe you were almost jumping through the ceiling as no one has ever done before on a tiny desk concert. Yeah, that was Wala, our uh, vocalist and dancer and percussion as well. We just did that yesterday, so looking forward to see that come up. So all of your music, I mean, it's very danceable, of course, and very powerful. However, also lyrically, and there's always like a subtext, and it's very fascinating. And this next song in particular, it kind of struck me as a particularly fascinating story. Before we hear it, tell us a little bit more about Locked Up Shop. It's a song that um, our keyboardist and singer, also uh, Z The People, wrote. Also, Walat wrote lyrics on it and sings on it. And the idea of it is the reference on like a Palestinian street when there is a wedding in the neighborhood. It also looks like when there's a martyr. And it's almost like the same music is always the same. So it's kind of like describing a scene of someone getting their hair cut for their wedding day. But also there's a riot on the street. So that's the idea. So riot, wedding, all the same? <laughs> riot, wedding, all the same. Yeah, if you're living under occupation in Palestine, you know. So that symbolism, you know, which you find also in Palestinian narrative, in Palestinian stories. These are very common themes. So we kind of bring them up and mix them again in a new wave way. Here's Locked Up Shop. <laughs> Fuck the man, 
There's the song Locked Up Shop from 47 Soul, and we're talking with vocalist and electronics person Tarek Abu Kuwait, and that's a terrific song. I, I, I like the whole milieu there. It's, it's terrific. So, Tarek, uh, tell us, have, you. have you been able to perform, I think you have, right up in the West Bank in 2016 for the first time? Was that is that accurate? Yes, yeah, I mean, as a group. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. As individuals... We've all played in the West Bank at different points, but not together. And we did in 2016. Unfortunately, it was the last time we played as a group there because ever since, every time we go down, they refuse. El Jihaz, our uh, guitarist and producer, they refuse his entry permit. So, you know, that brings back the subject of movement is limited in the Arab world in general with Arabic passport, but the Palestinian case specifically is even more complicated. But we did play in the West Bank in 2016. It was great. And we did put the guitars in playback after that. <laughs> and have like 12,000 people in the audience yell the name of El Jihaz, our member, you know, like across the border. So we try to make a statement when we don't get the permit, you know. I wanted to ask a question about the name of your new release. It's Balfron Promise, which sounds a little bit like Balfour Declaration. Uh, what's happening there? We released it on the 100th year mark of the Balfour Promise, which is basically a British promise to the Jewish people in Europe to take the land of Palestine, (laughs) which is something that obviously our people back then, which are Jewish, Christian, and Muslim people who live on the land of Palestine, welcomed all the people who were coming because that's normal for Palestine, right? I'm just trying to say that Palestinian people don't deny Shimei biblical symbolism of Palestine for the Jewish people, because that's not happening. But then, of course, that became later on the occupation, like years after. I mean, we don't have a long interview to get into that. But I'm trying to say is that this is the symbolism of gentrification is like occupation was the idea of Balfour Promise, Balfour Tower. We were living in Balfour Tower, a tower in London that has a lot of migrants and had a story where they promised the people to come back for a furnished, refurbished apartment, and there was a court case, and it's just an example of something that happens in a lot of cities in the world these days, where gentrification can turn into someone losing their home, you know, paralleling that with occupation was the idea of the album. It's kind of a loose idea, but it has stronger parts and weaker parts, and we were just maneuvered around it in a kind of reflecting emotions of what happens today on the ground and what happened and how things sort of don't change but also change a lot 
So that was because you used a play on the gentrification of Balfron Tower, a kind of a metaphor for gentrification, because in Balfron Tower, apparently, they uh, moved away like long-standing tenants to make room for, I guess, more money. <laughs> and, uh, and people who are gentrifiers like us, who also needed a home, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's the thing, you know, when you kind of like using a victim on another victim kind of thing, you know? Wow. You know, it seems like your career is going great, like this music is resonating. It's very idea-oriented, but it's been super popular. You're kind of blowing up here. Are we? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> you know, we just do what we enjoy the best, and, you know, it's a blessing to hear that, you know. I mean, it's important for us to play in North America. We do want to share the sound that we have with the bigger pool of all the arts and all over the world, you know, and that's a very important country when it comes to that. Well, congratulations on everything that's going on. Tarek Abukwek is the vocalist and electronics guy for 47 Soul, and their new release is Belfront Promise. You can see them at the Old Town School of Folk Music's Square Roots Festival on July 12th. They're also going to be with us in London, Ontario, at Sunfest coming up this weekend. We will be going on the road here on Worldview, and we'll be going to Sunfest in London, Ontario. You'll also be hearing shows next week from Toronto, Dearborn, Flint, and Kalamazoo as we travel around and do a fun road trip for the summer. And Catalina Maria Johnson is coming with us for Sunfest, and we'll be doing some interviews there. This will be great. This is going to be lots of fun. So, Tarek, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. What song should we go out on? Maybe Moved Around? Moved Around. So, Band's Choice coming up. Moved Around, 47 Soul. Thank you for your time, guys. Thanks yeah. a lot. We'll look for you at Sunfest. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Make sure you dance. Always, All always. Right. <laughs> Bye. Let's do it. My people move around. More people move around. My people move around before we all get moved around. My people move around. Now people move around. All people move around. Steve Bynum and Julian Haida produce Worldview. Have a great Fourth of July. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. كل وش حالم واجوه تزبط معي ولا سروا مني محتاج